Hello, it's Max Amana here. It's a new year, and it's time to look ahead as we continue our journey towards net zero. The energy industry is evolving at a faster rate than ever to get us there by producing and connecting more clean energy. This means more innovation, more technology, and a lot of imagination, thinking outside the box. As always on the podcast, we'll be looking at those ideas, those technologies, and today is a bit special because we're going to do some serious future gazing. We've gathered together some fantastic guests who are going to take us into the future to predict the big ideas which will change our energy world across the next 12 months and beyond that, looking decades ahead. We'll be talking about renewable energy, EVs, and new legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which includes a $369 billion investment in domestic energy production to help reduce carbon emissions. We'll discuss technology I haven't even heard of yet. I just know it. Are you ready? This is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. It feels like an energy supergroup coming together. And I want to introduce you to each of them in turn. First up, Emma Pinchbeck. I'm Emma Pinchbeck. I'm the Chief Executive of Energy UK, which is the trade body for the energy sector. And before that, I worked for Renewable UK, representing wind and renewable technologies. And before that, I was the head of the climate change programme at WWF, which means I've gone from getting the government to ban coal to working out what we do about that um, now that it's going. So I'm passionate about this agenda. I'm also just back from maternity leave. So it's a good way to turn my brain back on. Alongside Emma, another person passionate about clean energy, Shini Samara. I'm Dr. Shini Samara. I am originally a mechanical engineer and fluid dynamicist. And now I am a broadcaster of science, technology and innovation. And my key priority is to democratise engineering and technology Um, and make it more accessible for everybody. Joining Shinny and Emma, we have Keith Stevens from National Grid. Hi, everybody. I'm Keith Stevens. I'm Group Corporate Affairs Director with National Grid. You might be able to hear from my accent. I'm an American, so I'll have a different perspective on some things from the rest of the group. I've been with National Grid a little less than a year. Uh, Before that, I spent about a decade in California where I was in charge of corporate relations and communications at Pacific Gas and Electric Company, so I have a very specific view on kind of renewables and all that that means to us in our future lives. And I'm just really happy to be here and I really am excited about our guests. So we're going to be looking ahead, not just with our guests gathered together in the studio. We've asked experts across the energy industry for their predictions for clean energy in 2023 and beyond. We'll hear what they think and get the reaction from our panel. It's going to be a fun one. And to start with, Let's get one idea from each of our guests. What predictions do they have for the future of clean energy? Will it be something from the next 12 months? Or will they go wild and look 10, 20, 50 years into the future? Keith, why don't you go first? Well, I I always like to go a little bit further out because then the predictions are a little bit easier to have to maneuver. (laughs) So I'm going to look about 10 years out. And of course, this is going to be with my perspective coming here, having spent about a decade in California. I really see V to G vehicles to grid as really being the game changer. 
So vehicle to grid essentially is a bi-directional kind of two-way flowing grid. So your car, which is charging at night or during the day, can become a battery that can be used by the local utility to help balance the amount of energy you either use in your home or that that can be put back on the grid for other use. We have all this wonderful renewables coming online here in the UK. We have the transmission that we're going to build to connect that, but we also need that storage to, to take care of us. And so I think about all those dis- distributed energy resources out there of cars, how we'll manage them like one big battery overnight and during other peak times. And my own personal experience looking at what happened in California, the more extreme weather becomes, the more impact from climate change, you might have your energy supply disrupted. There might be such extreme weather Temperatures like we had here, 40 plus degrees in London, there might be so much demand that we have to tap into those additional energy resources. So that's kind of the first part of my prediction is I see V2G really being the key to what we need to do here in the UK. The other part to that is we need some base load. We have a lot of nuclear plants retiring here in the UK. Are we going to extend those out or are we going to go something along the lines of small modular reactors? I'm a big fan of the small modular reactor. So I really see kind of V2G and SMRs being two key cornerstones of what we want to do here. That was Keith. What will Emma come up with? I'm going to cheat as well. And uh, when we look back, what will this year mean? And a lot of people talked about 2020 being the year that everyone suddenly felt what the climate models had been saying for a long time to be true with extreme weather events and the kind of public conversation and, of course, a, a home cop here in the UK. I think that the energy crisis and the consequences of that, plus the development of technologies... And where we're at in the energy transition means that 2023 will be the year that we look back and said that initial phase of decarbonisation and new technologies is over and we're into this period of having to think about what an energy system looks like where they're incumbent. And I think the public will become aware of them in the way that they haven't been before. For us in the sector... I think the next decade is all the crunchy stuff we've somewhat avoided until now. So grid and planning and, you know, these technologies being in people's homes and then wanting the services that come off them and getting that right over the next 10 years will be critical. And this will be the year we start to feel that excitement and that pressure in an audience beyond the energy sector. And finally, Shinny. I think it's really important that we understand the importance of sustainability and climate change and how energy use feeds into those things. I think we live in a society where we've heard many messages about 1.5 degrees C increase in global warming, the fears around climate change. But I don't think people have fully embraced what their part is in that. And as Emma was saying, you know, we are experiencing extreme weather events. We're now more involved in what climate change means today. And as a result, I think people are starting to become more proactive in the way they use energy. And so I'm hoping that the future involves more pressure on governments to actually allow us to actually embrace how we use power and and push for change. Because I think right now we are living in times where many of us want to be sustainable and we want to exist in a way that is kind to our planet. But we are limited in doing that because alternative fuels are so expensive still. So I hope that we have a future where we can actually 
realise our intentions of being more sustainable when it comes to energy use and actually implement it. And I think that will happen through the use of advanced technologies. So I'm hoping that advanced technologies can actually push through and we get to our goals of net zero and not just talk about it, but actually do it. Okay, that's the predictions from Shinny, Keith and Emma. But let's go now to our first guest prediction. My name is Jake Navarro, and I'm the director of the clean transportation team at National Grid. My prediction is that within the next 10 years, it's actually going to start to seem weird if a home is not capable of charging an electric vehicle. Uh, Whether it's the garage of a single family house or the parking lot for a huge apartment building, we'll be able to charge up EVs wherever we live. I think uh, Jake is absolutely right. I, th- I think I touched on that in part of my prediction, but the clean energy revolution is going to be widely based on what our transportation needs are going to be. You know, one thing about National Grid, about 50% of our business is here in the UK and the other 50% is in the US, mainly in the Northeast and New York and Massachusetts. So as I think about that kind of end-use customer knowing about National Grid and relying on them to help counsel them through what what does EV mean to me? How, how do I put this in my garage? Is my community being part of this and making sure that you know environmental justice communities and diverse communities are, are not being left behind when it comes to electric uh, vehicle charging? I think that's absolutely right. It's a big part of it. When I reflect back on California, I think last year they had about 18% of their new cars were, were electric vehicles. The rest of the U.S. is about 6%. I think here in the UK, it's about 16, 17%, yeah. something like that. I think for, it was a third at Christmas, yeah, actually, the end of year figures exactly. for Exactly. Very big push at the yeah. end of the year. So uh, a lot of great opportunity there for the future. So I think it's, it's a good prediction because none of us are going to question it. But I think it's worth thinking about the energy system and the implications of that for us. So that will happen if we've got the services to make sure that people benefit from those cars. So things like flexible tariffs. Yeah. And being able to do things like vehicle to grid, maybe. So it's a kind of energy market problem for yeah. us. I also think that even with charges in homes, range anxiety would still may still be a thing. Don't forget, a lot of people don't have home parking. So making sure that the public charging network is fit for purpose and accessible is critical. And I feel like we've been talking about that like since the dawn of time in the energy sector. So we need to crack yeah. on and do it. And then lastly, we have to face the reality that EVs are not the only mobility solution. So there's going to have to be a role for us system planning, thinking about the people who won't be driving and how we make things like electric buses happen, how we're decarbonizing fleets and, and giving fleet owners that ability and so on. So it's a good prediction, Jake, but it feels like the start of a much bigger conversation about what EVs mean. And again, a third of new UK car sales. So this is the year we have to start getting that right. It's a great prediction, I agree, but I feel like a lot can happen in 10 years. And in terms of technology development, I think people have been excited about the prospect of driving electric vehicles. I think I can't imagine anyone that wouldn't want to drive an electric vehicle, but I think often people are really limited by range and they find that prohibitive because there isn't that infrastructure in in place. And with predictions like this, it is so much about infrastructure and less about the actual vehicle and the convenience of being able to charge from home. But why I think 10 years is a long time is because in that time, 
I think technology could look really different. Mm -hmm. So it may not be about plugging your car in at home. It may be about swapping batteries out. So rather than sitting at a service station and waiting three hours for your battery to charge up, it may be a case of within seconds just swapping batteries out. Batteries is such an interesting topic when it comes to prediction because this kind of technology has been in development for years and will continue to be developed as we look to build better batteries. So this prediction for me is all about the future of battery technology Mm. and less about vehicles. So I can't wait to see how batteries develop in that time. I love that thought because you're right, 10 years is a long time away. And will we, in fact, be buying cars or will we we be leasing a portion of Mm. one? Will we only be using Uber and Lyft? And will all those cars become that bank of, of, a, of a large battery that we just need to use on occasion when we go to the store, go to the market, go to our kids' football game or whatever, right? So it's to me, thinking I had 10 years on that is, is, a, is a big stretch. But the big question in my mind is, will we be the car culture that we were in the previous century? Yeah. But with this idea of autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and vehicle to grid, I can see mobile batteries shuttling around cities and beyond. Mm-hmm. That, to me, makes more sense as a V2G concept than owning a car and charging it. So it might be a really interesting convergence of technologies in ways that we never imagined in 10 years' time. Our next predictions come from two different people in the energy industry, and they have a common theme. Here we go. My name is Glenn Barber, and I'm Group Director of Corporate Affairs at SSE PLC. My prediction is that 2023 will be a pivotal year for the development of carbon capture and storage and hydrogen technologies. We've seen a huge increase in the in the pace of the build out of renewables uh, in the UK and internationally. That's only intensified as a result of the energy crisis with countries looking to build more of their own domestic clean power sources. The flip side of that is that you need more and more flexible sources of power generation to make sure that you can you can provide that balance when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And 2023 promises to be a very important year for both carbon capture, where we would see uh, the first contracts awarded for for CTS power stations to be built. We're hopeful of winning one for our project at Kibi, and also for hydrogen, where we need to be developing first-of-a-kind pilot projects at the same time as putting in place the long-term enduring framework Uh, for how we're going to build a hydrogen economy in this country into the future. So 2023, I think we'll look back on it in in years to come as as the point at which we really started to drive progress towards putting those things in place. And there's a big prize there because not only will it help us deliver on our net zero targets, help deliver cleaner, more secure energy, but there's also a huge opportunity for the UK to become a world leader and export some of those technologies and, and skills globally. So hopefully... 2023 will be a great year for CCS and hydrogen. Hi, my name is Chris Cavanaugh, and I'm a consulting engineer in the Future of Heat Engineering team at National Grid, responsible for bringing the option of green hydrogen ultimately to all of our customers. Before the next presidential election, National Grid will be safely producing green hydrogen and delivering it to all kinds of customers. The U.S. Department of Energy has compared hydrogen to the moonshot in the 60s and set a goal of hydrogen affordability in just 10 years. Our company has and will continue to lead the way in the hydrogen shot. You know, hydrogen just leaps out at me with those predictions. And I 
the technology surrounding them is really, really exciting. But whilst also being excited, there's this sense of there's so much to do. Even if it was just changing aviation for planes to be flying on hydrogen, the amount of infrastructure that has to be put in place for that to happen. And in a previous episode, we looked at a hydrogen plane and it's real. You know, this this little aircraft will be shuttling people around the UK using hydrogen. But the idea that long haul flights will be running on hydrogen is so far away because to actually store hydrogen at airports will require so much change. And so it's kind of excitement and a bit of uh, frustration at how much technology needs to develop and how much work needs to be done. So there are some known knowns about the future system now at the, at the point that we're talking. And one of those is that it's going to be a energy system led by renewables. And that's because the cost of renewables has fallen so spectacularly over the last decade. And so that will be onshore wind, offshore wind and solar in most markets. What that then means for the system is that we have to deal with variability in some way. Now, the technology is improving all of the time. So renewables are becoming more reliable and they're generating more often in more conditions and all of that good stuff. And at the other end of the system, we have technologies that can utilise that electricity more flexibly and efficiently, things like EVs. But there's about, depending on who you ask and what day of the week it is, 15 to 25% of the mix in the UK on just the power side where we don't think it will be renewables. That won't be cheap anymore to do. So we need another technology And so it's absolutely obvious to everyone that you need some kind of flexible generation, which looks like it should be hydrogen in gas power stations or gas power stations that are somehow abated. Plus things like storage and hydro and um, nuclear and and other things. But we don't have it. And, And when I think about the things that keep me up at night, it's the gas transition because we know that we will probably need some kind of molecule in the system for storage or for generation or for heavy industry or for all the tricky bits, but we don't have it yet, to your point, Sherry. And I think that that's what we should really be pushing government to pull their fingers out on right now. And and the good news for government is it's what they did with renewables. They need to pump prime a sector, you know, look at the big infrastructure, get that kind of private investment going and drive competition so that those projects can scale. On the other end of the system, what we use it for, I think that is much more up for grabs and debate. And it feels very, very exciting for things like heating and transport that we've got you know, lots of different technologies fighting it out. Well, I would say I'm excited about uh, green hydrogen. I think it holds a lot of promise. When I think about the difference between the UK and the US, mm. uh, obviously for the UK, you need flexible generation. That's going to play a role. When I look at the US especially in the markets where we're at, significantly colder, different kind of meteorological kind of footprint. We saw, you know, record snowfall in Buffalo that gets all kinds of snow all winter long. 
and a record snowfall this this past Christmas where it kind of crippled the city. So as we think about this, and, and Grid actually rolled this out last year, we're, we're very bullish on electrification. We see up to 85% of the system being electrified. But in those hard-to-heat areas mm-hmm. and those hard-to-drive industries, whether you're making aluminum or, you know, the big industrial sector, how are you actually going to drive those? And so we see both green hydrogen playing a significant role as well as RNG. If you think about wastewater facilities and other things, you have a significant, you know, fugitive methane issue. And so mm-hmm. what are we doing to both kind of solve two problems? How are we going to bring down our emissions as well as capture methane, which we know is significantly damaging to the environment? So we see both green hydrogen and and renewable natural gas playing a significant role in what we call the fossil-free future. And so that's really what we're focused on. We've committed to by 2050, we will not have any fossil fuels at any of our natural gas lines in, in North America. And so that's what we're embarked on. When I look at the funding coming out of the Biden administration as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of that is focused towards hydrogen hubs all throughout the country, whether that's the south along the Gulf Coast where you have a lot of hydrocarbons, also the west coast, and then, of course, the northeast where we're mm-hmm. based. So we're very, very interested in pursuing that with a lot of our state agencies in, in terms of the hydrogen hub. It's so smart to do it by industrial clusters, this. You know, when we talk about the rollout, it feels like that model where you've got a heavy industry in the U.K., where we're doing it, we've often got heavy industry then an absolutely gigantic offshore wind farm nearby where we can make green hydrogen and then possibly residential developments where you can look at hydrogen for other uses. And Energy UK is technology neutral, so we kind of support further R&D. I think you're right there. I think we feel very bullish about electrification. So the best thing I've heard about hydrogen is this idea that it's a kind of vector in the energy mm-hmm. system of the, fu- of the future, that it would it'll fit into wherever we can't do anything else. And therefore, for me, the economics are really interesting because it strikes me that it will be a fairly rare commodity, especially if it's green, and that there'll be competition for it. So it might be the expensive thing we do when we don't have any other alternatives and where the use case is is very clear for it. And the challenge over the next 10 years is to try and work out exactly how much of it we've got and how the economics stack up for its end use. I think it's also really interesting how innovation is sparked when it comes to hydrogen and even carbon capture because creating hydrogen is so energy intensive. Mm. Right now, it's so interesting because we are in that transition period where we're phasing out fossil fuels and really trying to go full steam ahead with renewables. And hydrogen nicely plugs that gap. Mm. But it's also going to plug other potential gaps in the future in the sense that countries, some developing countries that have a lot of renewable potential could be creating hydrogen for us in the future and could completely change the power dynamics. Yeah. And I just, it's so exciting that that could happen. Countries that are not on the radar in terms of contributing power and electricity could one day be our main source of hydrogen. Yeah, the geopolitics is amazing. So in this kind of where will we use hydrogen and how much will it cost, one of the big missing things is the shipping of it and how will we transport it long distances. But if we could get that right, then the export of energy from countries like Morocco suddenly looks really different. And if you're an OPEC nation, you're suddenly thinking, well, uh, you know, this is a complete change in the geopolitics of energy. 
And I think that's going to be fascinating over the next 10 years. Arguably, we're seeing a little bit of that already with what's happening in Ukraine. And what an opportunity to do something potentially fairer or at least very disruptive in a good way to the economics of energy globally. Right. Time for another two predictions now. Here we go. Hi, my name is Lisa Jacobson, and I'm the president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. And my 2023 prediction is enactment in the United States of federal permitting and siting legislation. This legislation will be critical to realize the promise of the energy transition that North America has already begun, and it will ensure that we can achieve at the corporate level, as well as the community level, net zero emissions reduction targets. My name is J.C. Sandberg, and I'm the interim CEO and chief advocacy officer of the American Clean Power Association. My prediction is that 2023 will be another pivotal year for clean energy. For the first time in history, we have the statutory foundation in the Inflation Reduction Act to put the U.S. economy on a pathway to decarbonization by mid-century. But the Inflation Reduction Act won't single-handedly bring about the clean energy revolution. To fully realize the law's potential, the executive and legislative branches must work in concert to cut red tape. Yeah, so what we're talking about here in Lisa and JC's uh, two predictions is the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that's about an almost $400 billion package that was passed by both houses of the U.S. Congress last year to really drive the clean energy future and invest in a whole host of different technologies. I think when we think about the Inflation Reduction Act, we also think about the IAJA, which is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, both of those are kind of once-in-a-generation pieces of legislation and funding for particular areas, thinking about clean energy here, that don't come around that often. I am not as optimistic on Lisa's prediction for siting and permitting. If there's anything that they could work together on that's not political – that's certainly something that I think both Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. could get behind would be reforming, siting, and permitting, especially looking at everything that needs to be built in the next five to ten years to, to be able to realize the clean energy needs that all of us have. Um, and I think J.C. hits it right on the head. While, while the passage of that was great, there is more work to do. I'm not sure I see that getting accomplished perhaps in the next two-year cycle. We'll see where things go in the next election cycle after that. I'm actually really angry about how good that legislation is, speaking with a UK hat on, because we work with a lot of global companies who have offices all around the world. And almost overnight, my members here in the UK were saying, you know, there's pressure on us now to move budget and resources to the US because they've just got it right. And what they've got right is the massive investment signal, the kind of scale of the market, but also the link between the the market design bit, so the kind of getting the finance in, but also building the supply chain and linking the two together. And it's so smart because, you know, coming back to conversations we were having about EVs, you know, it's not just having the EVs and having the markets, it's also having the supply chain for your batteries, having the people who can build those cars and having the factories now. And there's been a global supply chain crunch. So competition for the three or four boats that are big enough to build 15 megawatt turbines it's going to go to the countries who've managed to get factories and supply chains in place as well as their markets and that is absolutely what the US is looking to do and other countries around the world that want that market need to move really quickly to emulate it. Speaking on behalf of um, just an average member of the public I'm all for anything that 
encourages technological development. And it's really positive seeing legislation coming through that supports the advancement of technology towards more sustainable ways of generating and using power. And um, it's so interesting hearing your viewpoints from either side of the Atlantic, because on a global level, it's so important to encourage this kind of change. And I just fully support anyone that is willing to support technological advancement. And I think we've been talking about the changes that need to happen Mm. and not actually doing anything to allow for that change. And so it is really exciting. And I just wish that here in the UK we could embrace it more. Yeah, 10 years to build a wind farm in many cases. And it actually only takes us a year Technically speaking, the 10 years comes from having to jump through lots of regulatory hoops, planning permissions, consents, consulting, getting your financing right. And that is so ludicrous when we're in this massive global race now for economic reasons and also because the planet's on fire. Okay, time for our next prediction. This one also mentions the U.S. legislation, but takes it somewhere a little bit different. My name is Catherine Hamilton, and I am chair of 38 North, a public policy firm focused on clean energy and climate innovation. I also spent eight years as an original co-host of the Energy Gang podcast, so I've spent some time prognosticating. It took over a decade to pass meaningful climate legislation, including an energy storage tax credit, but the Inflation Reduction Act is a real game changer. My prediction is that in 10 years, U.S. manufacturing of clean energy technology will be vibrant and that customers of all types and incomes will be in the driver's seat. Of electric vehicles, of course, but also of distributed energy resources that will mitigate impacts of carbon emissions, reduce energy costs, and build resilience in the face of increasing climate catastrophe. The straight answer to this, because we are ahead or were ahead of the curve in the UK, is yeah, absolutely that will happen. So if you think about the UK's journey, 2008 Climate Change Act, followed by an energy bill that that decided that it was going to invest in renewables. So our electricity market reform and things like our then renewables obligation, but our contract for difference scheme since then, you know, our, our energy markets were about priming these new technologies and off the back of it we've built a massive offshore wind industry in the UK you know I think we could have done more to get those supply chains but that is a lesson that the Inflation Reduction Act learned so without question I'd expect to see that kind of transformation in the next 10 years and already in Texas the fastest growing job is wind turbine engineer so they're definitely on the right track. The second part of Catherine's point was about equity though and The change at the other end of the system, so who will own EVs, who will drive them, what do these technologies mean for bills or energy services? And in principle, yes, that should be the world that we can build. The characteristic of this system in the future is one that is much more distributed, much more demand-orientated, much more democratised, but we have to design the system that way. So how do you get the kind of best of the state and centralised planning without a centrally planned system that kills off those price signals and services to customers. And I think one answer to that is that a very clear role for the state is democratising technologies earlier than they otherwise would be available to vulnerable or poorer groups. And so things like we should be investing in energy efficiency for the poorest homes, we should be making sure that 
people can afford heat pumps in a time period that is fair and not just able to pay households are the only people that can have them. We should be able we should be making sure that people who don't drive have access to clean, cheap mobility options, etc. 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 So this transformation is going to be a really good partnership between business and the state. And it will be interesting to see how different countries tackle that problem of, you know, what's about old-fashioned, big engineering, big central system planning and what's about give it to the people and see what happens. It's interesting when you talk about people because Mm. I think what's really important is education Mm. and knowledge. So much can happen at that level to spur on change. You know, we talk about EVs and we talk about different technologies and and it can all get quite technical, especially when we talk about the economy and politics. But the average person on the street will not buy an electric vehicle because he or she can literally not get the mileage they need. And sometimes decisions go right back to basics. And, um, you know, all this legislation is really important. And when we talk about the different technologies that will be developed in the future to make these changes happen, I'm just thinking about the person who needs to gain an education in order to work to make these technologies sustainable. I mean, that's my perspective. It's I'm thinking about the people at the end of the chain, yeah. you know, the, the users of this power, and how important it is for them to understand the importance of where their energy is coming from. I think that's right, but there's also a, and if they need to, so, and and what people need to know and what they don't because what they're after is the service. I, and This is a really inarticulate way of thinking about things like flexible tariffs and automation. So do you care about the energy source or are you going to be like my mum running our entire house on Economy 7 when I was a kid, which was that cheap tariff that came on in the evening? And then my mum was doing what is like dumb load shifting, providing a service to the grid and using energy when it was cheap. But what my mum cared about was the energy's cheap, so I'm putting on the washing machine because I've got two kids in a house to run. And I think in our world, we often get excited about the technologies, but for most people in their day-to-day lives, what they're after is the service. And there's a really key group of companies in this system, which are the energy suppliers, and what they can do to catch these technologies and translate them into useful energy services for people if we're having the centralised system. The other thing that we haven't said is, I'm aware that I've accidentally fallen into talking about energy markets which have historically been centralised and are transitioning. And one of the fascinating things to watch will be what happens in countries that are building energy systems from scratch with new distributed technologies at their heart and not having to do the rewiring job that we're doing in Western democracies. So, you know, what will it look like in places like Malawi where they're building energy systems that are going to be based a lot around solar PV in more distributed models? And who knows what the winner will be economically? That's one of the great challenges about the next 10 to 20 years. Can I pose a question? Because both of you are working at a level which is, you know, representing massive companies. Um, But for a consumer, for example, if I wanted to put solar panels on my roof, I'm all for that because I want to live in a green way and I want to do my bit. But when the solar panels are so hideously expensive Mm. that I can't afford to do that. And, you know, it's sometimes I feel like that that's the education that I think is missing because 
people are more educated today about the power they're using because they switch on the TV and they see extreme weather events and climate change and it's very on our doorstep. But there seems to be a real disconnect between the fact that we really do need to act now and the fact that being able to act isn't easy and will take time. That Things are misaligned and I don't know where that comes from. When I think about the in-use customer, especially in the, in the US, having lived in California, a lot of extreme weather events, you know, you have these incredibly dry winds that we would have to literally turn off 500,000 meters, a million meters to make sure people were safe because one tree limb touching one wire could cause a, a wildfire that could wipe out a community. What would very wealthy affluent people do? Well, they would say, hey, you know what? This is my thing. I'm going to go solar. Here's $25,000. And I want two solar battery packs. So that's another 60. And I'll be off the grid. How many people can actually do yeah. that, right? Especially when 25% of your population in that state is already on a reduced rate because they're at a certain uh, income level, right? I'm very hopeful for the supply chain in the U.S. when I think about, you know, the 30 or 40 companies that have already announced new factories in Michigan and in Texas and in Georgia and all across coming off the hills of the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that's great. You know, government gives a signal and the market follows and goes and invests its dollars. So I think that's incredibly important. We've seen something uh, kind of the reverse mirror mm -hmm. here as we talked about you know, British Volt. But yeah, you hit it really importantly on the head is that in-use customer. I mean, I, I firmly believe people want to make good decisions. They want to make sustainable decisions. But at the end of the day, can they, because of what their pocketbook is telling them, to your mom, to your point about your mom being on a tariff where I'm going to use it when it's the cheapest amount possible. We have to be able to marry those two. And, and that, to me, is where government and industry can come together and really, really work together to make sure that we're meeting both of those. Because the, they're both good goals, affordability, and, and the clean energy revolution. We have to make sure they're the same revolution. Energy efficiency, to me, is the great equalizer. If you think about it, it you use less energy over time. It, it's a one-time cost, mm -hmm. right? So if, if I were going to today say, I want to cover your energy bill this year, I'm paying for something that is being used and goes through the system. If I can reduce what goes in the system with the energy efficiency in that housing stock, and we have some of the oldest housing stock in Europe, yeah. right? If we could fix that, our need to generate comes down. Mm. Your bills go down forever, not forever. I mean, you can continue to do upgrades. But to me, that is the great equalizer, especially for those that are the most vulnerable. How can we help them get into housing stock? How can we help them improve their housing stock? Yep. And it plays at a global level too. You think about the countries that really need the most energy that are developing fastest, that have the youngest populations, you know, that have growing economies. They're ones that historically have not had access to the kind of cheap finance that we have in Western democracies and in established economies. And so the conversation at global level is about, you know, how do you move that money to the people that need it most? And the conversation within country is how do you move the money to the people that need it most whilst getting the transition done as fast as possible? And, you know, back to predictions the next 10 years, again, that is the conversation everyone wants to have right now. And it's so hard to square the circle. But if we fail at that, we'll slow the transition down by 10 years. Like that to me is the importance of education, because I think when people are educated mm -hmm. about not just reducing their energy bills, but the importance of the way we're generating our power, yeah. they can then put pressure on governments. Yeah. Because right now, I think they don't connect the fact that the way they are using fuel 
is what's causing these changes in our climate, causing these problems down the line, which we are now all getting affected by. Yeah. It's not just the starving polar bear on a, on a tiny piece of ice. You know, it's now more on our doorsteps. And I think by making that connection, then the incentive changes from I don't want to pay such high energy bills to actually I want my kids to have yeah. a decent future. And it's um it's also worth thinking about in customer journeys because I have a gas boiler in my house and we, we renovated the house when I moved in in 2018 and we did the whole house and I had a very young, very sick baby and we looked into a heat pump at that point and I care passionately about this agenda. Um, it I don't fly, I go everywhere by train, I don't have a car, I'm vegetarian, I do all of the things but and I really wanted to do a heat pump and then the planning process and the conversations with my builders and the extra cost and the time and the hassle with a young sick baby and not being able to get to site just meant that we didn't do it. And we made the house heat pump ready because that was easy and the builders knew how to do it without me. But it was the planning process and the paperwork and it baffled me and I do this stuff for a living. And that's my way of saying if it's not easy for people, if the proposition isn't attractive, if it's not about making their lives easier, caring about climate change I don't think will be enough. And again, that's not just the straightforward, well, it's cheaper and, you know, yelling at people that it's cheaper. It's also got to be about, you know, we've already talked about citing and planning and consenting. It's got to be that stuff too. I would say as somebody who's living kind of a, a DNA, uh, <laughs> kind of a retrofit, I'm someone in his 50s from the U.S. This is the first time that I have not had access full time to a vehicle since I was 16 years old. Wow. And so going through the withdrawal process over the last 10 months has been very uh, educational for me. So what it leads me to think, Shani, is that we can all get there, but what, what are the signals? We just made a decision when we moved over here, when Grid brought us over, that we weren't going to get a vehicle. We, yeah. were, we were living in London. We, we were going we're gonna to figure it out, right? It would probably be a bigger hassle to have a car. Plus, I'm a safety nut, so I'm not going to start driving without taking driving lessons. But we can unwind those decades of kind of imprints that we've had on our DNA as a collective humankind for whether it's consumerism, whether it's travel, what, mm. any of those things, we can unwind them. It's difficult. I, I'm, I'm the Petri dish. I'm, I'm living <laughs> it, right? So are you. You have yeah. that experience. And we're not going to get everything perfect, but if we're making an effort every day, every year to do something, that's going to make the difference. Right? Yeah. And then, you know, it's our job in the energy industry to make that as easy as possible for mm -hmm. people. That You know, the motivations have to be plural to getting this right. It's got to be... You know, it's better for my kids. It's easier for my commute. My house is warmer. My bills are lower. I can my mum. I can run my washing machine at ten o'clock at night because that suits me. Or you know, I care passionately about the environment. And these are behavioural, complex conversations with people every day. And yeah, I suppose it's about education. I really want to drive an electric vehicle, but I just they're so expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know. Do you Wouldn't have a place it, to park it and to charge it? Yes, because in my area now, a lot of lampposts. Oh, you've got the lampposts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. But I still think electric vehicles are too expensive for my intention to be sustainable. So it's kind of mm -hmm. where a future where energy is, where it's easier to be more sustainable would just be such a great future. Yeah. I think. yeah. Right. Time for another look into the future. And this time, way into the future. I am Brian Ryan, Vice President of Innovation 
at national grid partners. Due to the fact that governments, businesses and the wider community are highly motivated to reduce carbon emissions, I believe in the next 10 to 20 years, we are going to see more and more what people currently think as fringe technologies or science fictions come into play in everyday life. Things like space-based solar, where solar energy is harvested in space and beamed <coughs> down to Earth. I believe we will also see things like micro nuclear power plants powering our residential homes. I get so excited by the kinds of technologies that could be in our future. You know, these ideas are great. They're not really science fiction. I mean, you know, the concepts behind space-based solar is very achievable, but it's also really expensive. So the amount of money that has to go into making that technology happen, I just feel could be used down here on Earth and invested differently so that so much of the ingenuity that we've already come up with and are so close to, you know, realising as an actual usable advanced technology, surely we have enough here already to really make change happen. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of innovation, but there's so much we can already do. Mm. I do think we'll see technologies develop we can't imagine now because that's the nature of human progress. And if you'd asked most of the energy sector 15 years ago that whether or not offshore wind would be the dominant incumbent power source in many major economies, everyone would have said you were crackers. And I know that because I was trying to represent offshore wind at the time. So I think we'd be naive to say we're done. On the other hand, one of my frustrations of the last decade of trying to get governments to act or the public to believe this is possible is the notion that we don't have the technologies that we need because we do. And again, something that's changed over the last year or so is that the energy sector can see the pathways to decarbonising now and can do it with the technologies we have available today. And so you're absolutely right, Ginny. We don't need to be pursuing a silver bullet technology because we've got all of them here now and it's about getting them to scale. It's a bit like the continuing debate about whether 2050 is the right date for decarbonisation when the real focus for governments should be on the next five to ten years because if we don't get that right, who cares what's coming in 20 years' time? And on technology development, we've got the stuff. Let's just roll out the stuff we have. I mean, for example, with space-based <laughs> solar... The major problem with solar technology here on Earth is the fact that, you know, you've got clouds in the way, you've got atmosphere that prevents solar rays hitting those panels, which you wouldn't have out in space. Mm. So that's an obstacle that doesn't exist out there. But then you've got the challenge of getting that technology up there, which would be massively expensive, very fuel intensive. Mm. And so it's all pros and cons. And it's just amazing you know I, I i get that sort of you know let's build bigger and further and faster yeah. and actually we just need to focus on making pv better yeah it's like lads just just spend some time looking at planning policy that's what we want 
you know, the the non-sexy stuff. Yeah. Just could we just be, it's like the age for like bureaucratic nerds. They're going to have a great 10 years because that's where all the crunchy stuff is. It's all, the, it's all like kind of small problems of physics and paperwork. And then I guess the guys will still do the rockets and girls, but it's it's not where we're going to pass or fail this decade. And, and it's not critical to meeting net zero as we understand it right now. I feel like we're like if Brian hears this, he's going to be very sad. I mean, it's you know the innovation is really exciting, I suppose. But <laughs> I would just say I know Brian well. Brian is uh, part of our National Grid venture capital arm, uh, based in Silicon Valley. So he does probably get a chance from once in a while to talk to some tech bros. Uh, I guess the thing I, I would say is I agree with both points that you've made. There, there's there's plenty to focus on down here. Uh, we don't maybe we don't need the solar array uh, up in up in space. I remember the first time I heard that as a concept, and somebody handed me a pamphlet or something that they were trying to hawk. I think it was supporting uh, one of the public utility commissions at the time in the states. And I just remember rolling my eyes and saying, "How could that be possible?" So what I would say is. There is that Star Trek effect, right? Mm. If you if you look back at the things that seem so outlandish in the 60s or whatever, pick your favorite decade. That's what we're living today, right? We have we have telecommunication in our pocket. We yeah. have we have MRIs, we have all these things that can can help human kind on a, on a large scale, but are we doing it in a way that's helping everybody not leaving anybody behind? So that would be my my point that I think you were trying to make is making sure that everybody has access to that. I think there's two separate conversations going on here. One is the importance of vision, ingenuity and creativity mm-hmm. in technology. And I hope that continues forever because it is great to have these outlandish ideas and explore and prototype and f- test and all those key engineering concepts So, you know, the science fictions that Brian talks about, I think, are really fundamental. But the second conversation that's going on is developing technology that is effective for the task at hand, which is to generate clean energy, you know, separate conversations. Maybe it's thinking about technology waves because I'm fine with basically get quite excited about new technologies so long as they don't distract us from doing what we need to do with the technologies that we have today and that includes that they don't divert investment resources attention or otherwise act as a break on progress so we can't allow a belief that something better might come along to stop us doing what we need to do with what we've got today because the nature of decarbonisation is this constantly ticking clock when we're running out of time but maybe the people having this conversation in 50 years' time through that first wave of decarbonisation will go, OK, what's next? You know, maybe space turns out to be the next iteration of solar that we do out to, you know, 2100 and then we do something better. So you need the dreamers, but I'm, as I said, very up for the pen pushers to have their moment in the sun for the next 10 years. Better bureaucracy is the challenge of the next decade. And it's also really interesting how innovation happens because you know we've been talking a lot about EVs and um, charging your electric vehicles at home but then the idea that that just may not be part of our future because Mm. suddenly we're like laying down induction roads and you know so it's great that technology is being developed in different genres and I, I think part of the prediction is not knowing how they're all going to knit together yeah and how exciting it will be that you know, there will be this merging of technologies that seemed very separate. So, yeah, 
science fiction, I think, is a really good thing for innovation. But definitely alongside that, we need to develop what we already have. Okay. We've reached our last prediction for this episode of the Clean Energy Revolution. Are you standing by? Here we go. My name is Louise Clark-White and I'm the Head of International Sustainability at National Grid. My focus is global, so my prediction is that despite continued challenging global economic and political circumstances, I think we will see greater collaboration between countries to reduce emissions globally this year. And that's building on the fabulous collaboration we saw at COP27 to establish the Loss and Damage Fund. And in particular, I think India's presidency of the G20 is going to make progress on the global commitment and efforts to phase down all fossil fuels, not just coal. So optimistic predictions from me there. I also have a hope that we will see countries around the world updating their national commitments and policies to keep 1.5 degrees alive this year, as we know that action is critically needed now in this decade. Thanks. I love the optimism in that, because I don't think... I felt the same wave of optimism about governments acting on climate since the Paris Agreement in 2015. So it's nice to hear a challenge to my cynicism on global dialogue being the way that things will get done. That said, there have been some massive steps on in in the the specific details of international negotiations. So things like this acceptance that we need to think about loss and damage or international finance or coal phase out. Um, And there was a global deal agreed for nature and biodiversity as well recently. So this awareness that, that the planet's resources are valuable is still there. What I do think has happened as a consequence of the energy crisis is a massive global competition for decarbonising for other reasons. And amongst the kind of populations of countries at large, the impact of extreme weather events becoming real. So it feels like government dialogue and international dialogue is happening almost now behind where the public mood is, where business is and where the economics of energy have gone. And so I, for the first time, wondered whether the COP was, so the, the, the kind of you know big climate agreements where governments come together, was, was as important as, say, a G20 meeting focused on a specific issue or national government's energy policy. Because I think where progress is now happening it's happening in an economic sphere or in a business sphere faster than it's happening kind of globally. I suppose it's back to what I said at the very beginning, the inflection point for me feels like it's less, there's a kind of weirdly a bigger awareness of climate change and the risks of it than there has ever been amongst ordinary people. But for government, a move to oh, wow, these technologies are really cheap and they can help us out with energy security and they can help us out with any number of other problems and and maybe this is the future of our economy and we're going to go for it. And so weirdly, there's more global competition rather than collaboration, but it's going to lead to a joined-up approach to tackling climate change. That's such an interesting dynamic to highlight, this idea that there's this competition that exists because of current political events and that could lead to collaboration. (laughs) I don't know, as a sort of bystander, 
observing all this, I'm asking the question, how will that encourage innovation? There seems to be a sort of sense of the importance of collaborating and awareness that it's a shared problem. You know, emissions don't choose borders. Mm. Um, And so there is this kind of sense of we need to all work together on this. I hope that people, governments, countries, nations do work together because whatever the incentive is, whether it's to have a competitive edge, I hope it just continues to lead to more innovation. Yeah, I think my view on Louise's thoughts Uh, I am a naturally optimistic person. I have a positive outlook and I'm hopeful as I am hopeful with what she's predicting here. Um, I also look at the kind of state of play with the situation in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, Mm -hmm. economies that were on the path, Germany and others have had to take a step back to fire up coal plants and other things. So I'm hopeful that if we are at a pause moment or even a step back that it allows us to leapfrog those two steps ahead, that we want the security, that we want the the clean energy that's going to allow us to achieve 1.5. So I think there may be a, oh gosh, are we going to make it? And so mm-hmm. hopefully a doubling down of what we need to do across all economies, all governments. You know, it, when I look at the U.S. and other places, are, are they really going to adhere to what, what needs to happen? And when you look at the, the big emitters, China, India, the U.S., that's really where the change is going to have to happen. I read somewhere recently about the fact that cryptocurrency requires a lot of energy to mine. Yeah. And the idea that developing countries that are renewable energy rich are now kind of turning their attention to getting on that cryptocurrency kind of band. It's really interesting how things are shifting. Yeah. I hope that we can collaborate on these changes in power dynamics. And we've seen what's happening across the pond in the US and in many established and Western democracies who've, who've kind of done some of the heavy lifting on things like the UN and, and G20 meetings are now facing their own battles with populism and, and a, a kind of fracturing politics. I suppose Ukraine has changed that somewhat. We're seeing a really united front amongst European states and are kind of buying back into things like the European Union and collaboration to deal with the war. But that has led to a kind of stronger sense of a group of countries acting together on other issues too, one of those being energy. I think what happens in places like Russia and China, in developing countries, what what India chooses to do, these things are all very new geopolitically and and will certainly be different to the last few decades of how global agreements operate. You can feel the power internationally changing and shifting and the politics changing and shifting that we're dealing with. So it's really hard to say whether these big international fora will be where change happens or whether it will be some other dynamic that comes forward, whether that's to do with trade or kind of economic competition or, you know, a a changing shift in energy markets, it's really difficult to tell. Wow, what a ride. Thank you to everyone who contributed and shared their predictions to this episode. And it's such a pleasure to bring together these three fantastic people, Keith Stevens, Shinny Samara, and Emma Pinchbeck. Thank you so much for joining our podcast and for being a part of the clean energy revolution. 
Excellent. Thank you for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is part of your own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next month, I'll be speaking to organizations in the UK and the US to find out how fighting fuel poverty can also help tackle the climate crisis. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast and don't miss it. See you then.